Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Glad to be with you on the Lord's Day. And uh, as well as miss many of our families, many of them out with sickness and other various things. But uh, it is a, a privilege to gather to worship God through His Word. And I invite you as we continue in our worship to turn in your copy of the Scriptures to the Gospel of John chapter 4. John chapter 4, this morning we're going to focus on verses 39 through 45. Let's hear the Word of God together. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in Him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to Him, They urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus Himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his, home, his own country. So when He came to Galilee, the Galileans received Him, having seen all the things that He did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. Amen. Let us pray and seek God's help as we come to the preaching of His Word. Let's, let's pray together. Father, as we have prayed, as we sung, we pray now that You would open our eyes to the truth of Your Word. We sit gladly and eagerly at the feet of Your Son to be our great prophet and teacher and instructor. Father, just as He opened up the bread of life to this woman and this Samaritan city, we pray that He would open up the Word of life to us. That He would feed us by His holy and precious and inspired Word. Father, we pray that You would apply this text to all of our hearts, that You would instruct our minds, that You would create by Your Spirit within us renewed affections and desires to serve You and to do Your will. Father, we pray in particular that like this woman, we would be those who are zealous to share the Word of Christ. Father, Your Word tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And we thank, Lord, this morning of the many, many nations who are still walking in darkness and need to see a great light. We pray, Father, that we would emulate this woman, that we would let goods and kindred go in this mortal life also, remembering that Your kingdom is forever. Father, work in the hearts of Your people, we pray. Transform us from one degree of glory to the next. Form Christ in us. Christ, the greatest evangelist. Help us, Father, we pray. We ask that if any are here, 
are strangers to your grace, Father, open the eyes of the blind. We pray that you would keep them from going away indifferent to the things of God, but that they would be faced with the truth of your word and the words of Christ and the person of Christ, and that they would choose life. Father, we pray that none under the hearing of the gospel today would perish in their unbelief. Be merciful, we pray. Teach us Your Word and encourage and edify our hearts, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we pick up for this uh, getting towards the close of this chapter, chapter 4. And if you've been with us, we've been eavesdropping, as it were, on Jesus' private instruction to this woman who is, was a poor woman, spiritually speaking, a needy woman, and she is converted and turned into a zealous evangelist. And we also last time eavesdropped on Jesus' private instruction to His disciples, urging them to awaken to the reality of the spiritual harvest that was at hand. And now this morning, in these verses that we've read, we see the conclusion of this visit our Lord's ministry to this city of Samaria in what we could describe as the Samaritan revival. And so, let's begin with our exposition and then we'll turn to doctrine and application. Exposition uh, will begin in verse 39. And if you have your Bibles, I especially encourage you during this portion to have them open so that you can see and examine the Word of God yourself to see if these things be so. Verse 39 picks up on the, on the heels of His instruction to His disciples, and it says, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in Him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. Now, there's several things I want to just briefly note from verse 39. First of all, remember, these are Samaritans. Okay? These are the people that in the Jewish mind of that day are the last people who should be flocking to Israel's Messiah. And yet, Jesus' trip through Sychar, through Samaria, is the most fruitful ingathering of souls that we have seen thus far in the Gospel of John. And you remember chapter 1, verse 11, when John introduces this theme that He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. And yet we see here that when He goes afar, afar off, they do receive Him. And this is a foretaste of the faith of the Gentiles who will gladly receive what the Jews rejected. And I think that's even indicated in their confession in verse 42 when they call Him indeed the Savior of the world. Now secondly, notice John specifies why they believed. They believed in Him because of the word of the woman who testified. Okay, and we're going to see why that's very important and relevant in a few, few minutes. We'll pick it up. But it's noteworthy. There are no signs or wonders recorded for us in Jesus' visit to Sychar. It is at first, in verse 39, the word of the woman that convinces them. And then if you look at verse 41, it is Jesus' own word And then verse 42, they tell the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, but we have heard for ourselves His Word and know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. As as I said, we'll pick pick that back up. Third thing, 
Notice how God uses even new believers' simple evangelism. Okay? Here's this woman. She's got the simplest of testimonies. And yet already, as Jesus has told His disciples, already she is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. It says, many Samaritans believe. Many Samaritans are entering eternal life thanks to her simple faithfulness. And Christian, that's a reminder and an encouragement to us. You don't have to be a skilled theologian in order to tell others about Christ. Okay, now, don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We don't want to be inaccurate in our testimony about Christ. But a brand new believer can know Christ truly and they can share that with other people even if they don't know Christ that well yet. In fact, some of the most zealous and heartfelt and sincere evangelism I've ever witnessed came out of the mouths of spiritual babes. Right? You ask them to define the hypostatic union and they're going to have no clue where to even start. And yet, they know with all earnestness and sincerity, I once was lost and now I am found. And you too need to come and meet Christ. Fourth thing, last thing on this verse. Notice how great a harvest God can reap from small labors. Many Samaritans believed. Matthew Henry says, our Savior by instructing one poor woman spread instruction to a whole town. Brothers and sisters, we should be encouraged to not despise the small audiences that God gives us. Don't be discouraged when it's just the ones and the twos that God brings to you instead of bringing you the crowds. Because it may be through the ones and the twos that God is going to, through them, spread the knowledge of the truth exponentially like He did with this one woman. Much like Philip preached the Gospel to one eunuch, and he then went back to his home country and spread the knowledge of the truth there. Now moving on to verse 40. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Now, that doesn't strike us at first, but if you remember the beginning of the chapter, remember John's comment, the Jews have no dealings. Uh, the Jews and Samaritans have no dealings with one another. Remember that animosity. By the grace of God, that natural animosity from the Samaritan towards the Jew has melted away, and they are urging or asking him to stay in their city. There are other places in the Synoptic Gospels where other Samaritans actually prevent Jesus from passing through, and yet these are urging him to stay. And in fact, the tense of the verb that's used is it's a continual asking and urging. Um, That's a sign of grace. God's prophets and ministers are always welcome guests to those who sincerely embrace the Gospel. God's people hunger when there is opportunity to entertain those who will do them spiritual good. Much Much like Lydia urged Paul and the others to stay with her. And Jesus graciously grants them their request. Though He was on a journey for another destination, He was heading for Galilee, and He had no doubt much other work to do, He sees that they sought to be instructed by Him, and so He does good where He is needed. And Christian, that's a lesson for us as well to instruct us. Sometimes 
Sometimes we get it in our heads that we're really needed at the destination to which we're going, and yet we need to not be so focused on our destination that we are too busy to minister to those who have need on the way. So verse 41, and many more believed because of His own Word. So notice, this is many more even on top of the many who already believed on account of the woman's Word. Um, the many who believed the woman's word came out to him at the well, uh, to the well, but perhaps those who were not convinced by the woman's testimony or they were disinterested for whatever reason, they were now affected by his own words as he now speaks to them in their city. And notice verse 42, those who had already believed because of the woman, they now say to her, now we believe not because, or it could be no longer because, of what you said, For we ourselves have heard Him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So, the ones who are already believing on account of the woman's testimony now have their faith strengthened and fortified by Jesus' Word. No longer do they have just a second-hand testimony, which is good, but they heard for themselves this man's heavenly speech, and they know that indeed or truly, this is the Christ. His words, as they heard him, made it very plain this is not an imposter. This is not merely a, a typological savior or deliverer like Samson or David and you know, the Old Testament uh, deliverers, but this is the one we've been waiting for. This is the savior of the world. It's very, very parallel to the Queen of Sheba. You remember the Queen of Sheba hears of Solomon's wisdom and the glory of his kingdom, and she hears enough to pique her interest and to make her go and to see if what she has heard is even remotely close to the truth. And you remember when the Queen of Sheba gets to Solomon and she hears his wisdom and she sees the glories of his kingdom, she says, truly not the half of it was told me. And here in Sychar, behold, one greater than Solomon is here who brings tidings of salvation from sin, deliverance from sin's power, even outside the Jewish people to these sinful Samaritans. And in hearing Him, all of their doubts are removed. All of their fears are put at peace when they listen to the gracious words of eternal life falling from His lips. Verse 42 concludes our Lord's fruitful ministry to the Samaritans. And then verse 43 through 45 is a transition text, if you will. I'll read verses 43 through 45 as a, as a whole, and then we'll kind of take it as a whole and discuss it. Verse 43 Now, after, two, after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the, Ga- the Galileans received him having seen all the things He did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now, I don't know if you've, you pick up on it, but verses 43 and through 45 is somewhat enigmatic. It's puzzling the, what John is saying here. Um, I'll, I'll try to explain why that is. Uh, in fact, this is one of the interpretive difficulties of the Gospel of John, of what exactly is John communicating here. Um, 
Jesus departs from, for Galilee, and Galilee is his home country, right? That's where, that's where Nazareth is. And verse 44 tells us the reason he departs for Gal- Galilee is this. For, because Jesus had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now what's significant is that in all the, the three synoptic Gospels, Jesus quotes this same proverb, and in the immediate context, it's very obvious that he says it because he's being rejected by his people. And so here in John, what you would expect in the following verses would be what? The Galileans rejecting him, right? We would expect to read of him being dishonored. But instead, what is said in verse 45 is that when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. Or, if you have the ESV, welcomed him. Now, how do we understand that? One explanation that some have put forward is commentator, excuse me, commentators point out that in the Synoptic Gospels, when Jesus quotes this proverb, he is specifically in Nazareth, not just anywhere in Galilee. And so they suggest that what is going on here is that Jesus departed for the region of Galilee, and because he knew he would have no honor in Nazareth, he either avoided Nazareth altogether, or he went there for a short time and was rejected and left, though John doesn't record that, obviously. And then he proceeded to be welcomed by all of the other towns within Galilee. Now, that's one of those arguments that it's okay, okay, I mean... Anyone can read between the lines and and assume things from silence. Um, it, It seems possible, but it is reading between the lines, and it raises this question. Why would John even mention this proverb when he doesn't even mention a visit to Nazareth nor any other place in which he was rejected? And why does he mention this proverb and then only go on to talk about how Jesus was welcomed by the Galileans? Right? It, it, seems, it seems like if he's not going to mention any actual rejection that happened, and instead he's going to talk about how Jesus was welcomed, it, it seems that it's confusing to even mention the proverb in this passage. Here's what I think is going on. Okay? We'll see if you're convinced as I am. And I'll just say it up front, and then I'll explain and walk through why I think this is what's going on. Whereas the Samaritans honored Jesus sincerely for His Word, when He returns to His own people in Galilee, they receive Him, but not in a way that honors Him as the great prophet. Okay? So, here's here's my best attempt to explain that. Look at verse 45. I think the key words that clue us into John's meaning here are the words that follow the words where John tells us the Galileans received him. Namely, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Okay. Now, I remind you of Jesus' verdict about those who saw his signs at the feast. In fact, turn back two chapters to chapter 2, verse 23. 2.23. John writes, now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Okay, this is what John's referring to. These Galileans were here. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, 
But Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man. Okay? So, these Galileans who are welcoming Him in chapter 4, they are people that we have already been given a commentary on their faith that it was a faith that was not genuine. Okay? Um, it, it was a faith based uh, disingenuously based on an infatuation with His signs, but not receiving His Word. And turn back to chapter 4. I think strengthening this thesis is what Jesus says in verse 48, the next section that we'll deal with, Lord willing, next week. In which, so chapter 4, verse 48, in which for some strange reason, if Galilee, if these people in Galilee are just genuinely receiving Him and welcoming Him, For some strange reason, the first words out of Jesus' mouth when this official asks Him for a miracle is this. Unless you, plural, speaking about all the Galileans, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Okay, that's not a compliment. That's a rebuke. And just to sum this up, what I think is going on here is John is again highlighting what He already prepared us for in chapter 1, verse 11. That Jesus came to His own people, but His own people did not receive Him. And there's irony here. Because here you have a Samaritan revival. Gentiles flocking to Christ on the basis of His Word. And nothing else. No signs and wonders. Just His Word. And contrasted with that, you have his own kinsmen doing the same thing that they've always done, simply being infatuated with his signs, but not honoring him as the Savior of the world. Okay, so that concludes our, our exposition. I want to turn to our doctrine and application this morning. I've combined these for time's sake. And I have two things that I want to open up this morning by way of instruction and application. And the first one is more of doctrinal instruction, though it certainly does have, you know, it touches down in terms of our lives, practical Christian living. Uh, and the second one is an encouragement for our application in our Christian life. So I'll give, I'll give them to you as we go rather than giving you uh, both at the beginning here. Number one, doctrine slash application. I want to open up from, on the basis of this text, the relationship between signs and the Word and saving faith. Okay? This morning's passage brings up a subject that's worthy of our attention. There will be many other places in John's Gospel where we run across these things. And it's important for our examination and understanding. What is the relationship between Jesus' signs and Jesus' Word and saving faith. And it's very important we understand that and get that right, lest we be like the Jews who dishonored their prophet. Okay? Now, I, w- I want to open this up under three kind of guardrails I'm going to give you, okay? In terms of major hooks that we can just hang our thoughts on of these are things that we must affirm, okay? Number one is this signs are said to be a reason to believe in Christ. Okay? Signs are said to be a, a reason to believe in Christ. So, you can turn to these actually. I'm mostly going to stay in John's Gospel. John 20, verse 30 and 31. 
Okay, this is where John gives the summary and the purpose of his book. John 20, uh, verse 30 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these, that is, these signs, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Okay? So we certainly don't want to hold the position that concludes that Jesus' signs and miracles were or are pointless or useless. Lest we be faced with the question, why on earth did Jesus even do signs in the first place then? And why does John record them for us so that we might believe? Okay, so that's the first guardrail. That's the easy one. Okay? Second guardrail is this. Secondly, however, having said that, that signs are given as a reason in order to believe, witnessing signs firsthand is not necessary for saving faith. And indeed, preferring signs to the Word of Christ reveals unbelief. Okay? So, Witnessing signs firsthand is not necessary for saving faith, and preferring signs to the Word of Christ evidences unbelief. Now, that first part, witnessing signs is not necessary for saving faith, that's evidenced, I think, implicitly in the Samaritan revival. Right? Uh, it was not on account of signs and wonders that they believed, but on the account of Jesus' Word. And I tried to point out that several times the word word is used. Her word. His word. What He said. And they were, the Samaritans received Him gladly. But, this is also, I don't just want you to see it implicitly, this is also explicitly stated later in the Gospel of John. So again, John chapter 20, if you're still there. This time, verse 25. Just a few verses before where we were. John 20, verse 25. This is Doubting Thomas. Okay, It's that section. And Thomas, in one of those, you know, when he gets to heaven, realizes, I wish I hadn't done this because it was one of those things that got recorded in Scripture for all to read. In one of those moments, uh, Thomas says, unless I see his hands and touch his side, I will never believe. Okay? Believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, Thomas deserved a rebuke for that because Jesus had told him very plainly that he was going to raise from the dead. But, nonetheless, Jesus graciously bears with Thomas and He even grants Thomas the very thing He demanded to see. And look at verse 27. He says to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, the implication of that is that demanding signs, right, unless I see... The implication of that is demanding signs and not believing Jesus' Word is a form of unbelief. Jesus says to him in verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen Me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Okay? So, according to Jesus, seeing signs is not necessary for saving faith because signs are not the ultimate ground for saving faith. The Word of Christ is, right? Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. That's, that's very significant for, for us in our day and our context in terms of the kind of charismatic stuff that is um, popular. Anyone who wants to say, 
that the gospel lacks power if it is not accompanied by modern day signs and wonders, which many people do say that, Jesus disagrees with that here. Indeed, Jesus here assumes that there were already and would be many who believe in Christ even though they had nothing to see by way of signs and miracles. And He doesn't say lacking are they. He says blessed are they. That brings us to the third thing. Um, And this is kind of elaborating further on something I've already alluded to. Thirdly, Jesus rebukes those who demand signs and don't, but don't believe His Word. Okay? Jesus rebukes those who demand signs and don't believe His Word. Matthew 16.4. You don't have to turn to this one. An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. John 4.48. We'll look at it next week. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I take that to mean this when he says that to the official. I take that to mean that you Galileans, unlike these Samaritans who were happy to receive me on account of my word and nothing more, you guys have the same Christ standing right in front of you. The same heavenly speech is pouring from my lips to you as it was to them. And you won't believe me unless you see something that dazzles you. And that is not a good thing. The Apostle Paul, we'll we'll get outside the Gospel of John here for a second. The Apostle Paul gives us a very telling window into this in 1 Corinthians 1, if you turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. First Corinthians 1, 22 through 24. Paul says, For Jews demand signs. Okay? So Paul experienced the same thing that Jesus experienced, right? Same generation of Jews. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Verse 23. But we what? We preach Christ crucified. Okay? So the Jews of Paul's days, they, they wanted. Um, They wanted displays of power. They they basically said to Paul, if you want us to believe you, wow me with signs of power and wonders. And Paul's what Paul is saying here is essentially you want do you want power? We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the what? the power of God and the wisdom of God. In Paul's understanding, the power of signs and wonders to give and bear witness to the Word is subordinate to the power of the Word itself. I'll give you another example. Turn to 2 Peter 1. Second Peter one verse beginning in verse sixteen. Wait till I hear pages stopping, stop flipping. First Peter, or sorry, no, Second Peter, chapter one, verse sixteen. Peter says to, to his audience, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we, speaking as an apostle, 
We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And now He's going to give them an example of when He as an apostle saw the majesty of Christ. Verse 17, For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. Okay, Peter's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. right? Now, look at verse 19. Incredible sentence, a statement. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as, a, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is saying that the prophetic word of the Scriptures that declare to us the glory of Christ are even more sure than his own eyewitness experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. Here's the reality, Christian. The word of the Gospel itself contains the greatest sign that Christ ever did. And it's one that is unrepeatable. Remember John chapter 2, verse 18? As He cleanses the temple, drives them out, and the Jews say to Him, what sign do You give us for doing these things? And Jesus' reply is, destroy this temple, and on the third day I will raise it up again. Speaking of the temple of His body. If you want a sign that Jesus' Word is true, is not the death and resurrection of Christ the pinnacle sign before which all the other signs pale in comparison? In that sense, all of us, if you're a Christian, you're saved because you believe a sign that God performed. You believe, 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for my sins according to the Scripture. He was buried and He rose the third day according to the Scripture. You see, here's the purpose of Christ, the signs that Christ performed. They were not ends in and of themselves. They pointed beyond themselves to the glory of the person who performed them. And if one saw the sign and they stop at the sign and they don't believe the words of the one who did the sign, they dishonor this great prophet. Right? We saw John 20. Um, verse 30, I believe. He says, these signs are written so that you may believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. His signs weren't just so His crowd could be tickled and, and so they could you know, feel fuzzy feelings or whatever. They were given so that sinners would be arrested by awe not merely in the sign, but by the infinite glory of the person who did the sign. In John chapter 6, I'll close this point with this. In John chapter 6, after, you don't have to turn there, after Jesus has amazed the crowds by the feeding of the 5,000, and then subsequently offended the crowds, and they all depart and leave, uh, depart from him. 
He asked the twelve, do you also want to go away? And Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Right after he multiplied you know, fish and a couple loaves, 5,000 men plus women and children, and Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so, Christians, should our faith be strengthened by signs? The answer is absolutely. By the signs that are recorded for us in Scripture that reveal the glory of the Son of God and attest to His words of eternal life. That brings us to the second thing, second doctrine slash application. We are taught in this passage how small beginnings can produce a great harvest of souls. We're taught how small beginnings can produce a great harvest of souls. In Mark 4, verse 30, Jesus says, to what shall we compare the kingdom? And He says, the kingdom is like a grain of mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground, it is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. We are seeing that parable worked out here in the Samaritan revival. You think about the humble beginnings of the kingdom of God. The the promise of the kingdom of God started with two fresh sinners in a garden. And the earth was put under a curse, The human race was put under a curse. And things looked very bleak at the beginning. But as sinners continued to multiply and fill the earth with more and more sin and more and more sinners, the promise of God also continued to unfold. And God chooses one man, Abraham, a pagan star worshiper, and promises Abraham that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And He promises Abraham descendants. And God takes those physical descendants of Abraham. Though God says you were the least of all the nations, He takes them to be His people. And through them, they are the vehicle in which the Christ comes into the world. And when Christ comes, it's not as Israel expected some glorious king in all the pomp that they wanted, but rather He's clothed clothed in frailty and weakness and obscurity. Just an insignificant, seemingly insignificant mustard seed. But through His work, He brings salvation and the glory of God literally to the ends of the earth. Jesus said in John 12.24, it's a pivotal point in the Gospel of John, Right after some Jews request to see Jesus, and Jesus understands that that's a sign that His hour had come in order to draw all people to Himself, He says in chapter 12, verse 24, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And He says, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Jesus is that grain of wheat 
in the eyes of the world, insignificant, lacking glory, lacking pomp. He is that wheat that goes into the ground and dies. And through His death, triumphs over the God of this age. He binds the strong man. He defeats the devil so that he might no longer deceive the nations so that from Christ, this root will grow a worldwide harvest of fruit. And at the beginning of that harvest, at the beginning of that harvest looked quite meager. Right? Christ in his ministry, he's got 12 men who follow him. One of them's a devil. Right before Pentecost, out of all of the thousands upon thousands of Jews he had preached to, he has 120 people devoted to him in the upper room. And yet come Pentecost, as the Spirit descends, thousands upon thousands are gathered in from all over the world. And the church from that point began its march into the gates of hell holding high the Gospel. From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the outermost parts of the world. What we have here in this Samaritan revival is a foretaste of that. The expansion of the kingdom of God beyond the borders of Israel into the Gentile world. And notice it starts like a mustard seed. Christ, the cornerstone, meets a woman, a sinful woman coming to draw water. She's a worldly woman living for the cares of this world. And she's converted. And through her testimony, many, many more come to believe savingly in Christ. Christian, I want to, as we close, I want to exhort us. The mustard seed principle is still true today. The Great Commission has not been completed. And we need to take encouragement from Jesus' example and this woman's example that God takes seemingly insignificant faithful endeavors and brings about great fruit beyond which we could even ask or think. And Bethany, in particular, I'm thinking about the nations. These Samaritans were cut off from the commonwealth of Israel and we today have country after country that is also cut off from the light of the Gospel. We in God's providence are planted in Stockton and we need to put down roots and be faithful where we are. I know not all of you are from Stockton, but you know what I mean. But there are nations that right now sinners are dying and perishing because they have not the light of the Gospel. What if the legacy of this church is not that it grew super big, What if the legacy of this church is not that it became famous and known, but that it sent missionaries to places where Christ was never known before? And through our small mustard-sized efforts, a place that once walked in darkness now has the light of Christ and eternal life. Brothers and sisters, we have got to biblically assess what we think of as success and how we measure success. Popularity and fame is not success in the eyes of Christ, in the eyes of God. 
There are many churches and pastors who have fame and all these things, popularity. That doesn't mean that you're being successful in terms of doing what Jesus told you to do. Faithful obedience to the Great Commission is success. And small, faithful works produce great fruit. I'll give you an example. The New Hebrides. The New Hebrides is a small chain of islands that for as long as we know, up until the 1800s, was populated by cannibals. In fact, the first person to discover it went ashore and within minutes was clubbed to death and eaten in front of, in front of the rest of the people still on the ship. Just a matter, about a decade after that happened, a man named John G. Patton says, I'm going to the New Hebrides to bring the Gospel. And today, the islands are 25% Presbyterian Reformed. You know why? Because like this woman, one man, John G. Patton, went and he suffered. He lost his wife. He lost kids. He grieved. And he was persecuted. And he saw great fruit. He was a grain of wheat like Christ that fell into the ground and died to bear much fruit. And he wrote towards the end of his life, he says, I claimed Aniwa. Aniwa was one of the, the islands. I claimed Aniwa for Jesus, and by the grace of God, Aniwa now worships at the feet of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, better to have the legacy of sending one John G. Patton in our whole lifetime than to be famous for doing nothing. Okay? We've got a lot of pastors and people who have popularity that are just diddling around with controversy and doing all sorts of things that looks like they're busy, and meanwhile, the nations are perishing. You know who the heroes are in church history? It's people like the Ethiopian eunuch, Paul, the apostles, Stephen, William Carey, Jim Elliott, Patton. We could go on and on and on. All of whom were people, like Hebrews says, of whom the world was not worthy. Because they didn't just mess around and talk. They did. Like William Carey. William Carey had maps just plastered all over his walls, consumed with the nations that needed Christ. His heart burned to get to the nations. And his motto was, expect great things from God and then attempt great things for God. And he expected, God has a people in India. And God could, from my mustard seed-sized effort, bring in a harvest of souls, which God did. And in fact, the modern Baptist missionary movement that in many ways was, was begun by Carey and the other guys with him, is, was a movement that fruit cannot be enumerated in terms of the missionaries that were sent out as a result of that. And so, Christian, like these Samaritans, the nations need the Word of Christ. Romans 10, how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless someone is sent? May God be pleased to raise up those preachers even from amongst us, Bethany. 
I know guys, you know, oftentimes wrestle with, should I be a deacon in the church? Should I be a pastor? And they give much thought to that. And they pray about that. How about adding to that list praying, should I be a missionary? Should I become one qualified to be a pastor, but not to stay here, but to go and plant the church where it hasn't been planted yet? As we pray for the nations, and as we think and scheme about sending to the nations, pray that God would do much with little. Believe that God can do much with little. This woman is a a trailblazer bringing the Gospel to her people. And so... Brothers and sisters, expect great things from God. And on the basis of that expectation, let us attempt great things for God. Bethany, I ask you, pray for the nations. And in our praying for the nations, ask that some of us might even be those who go to minister to them. Let's pray. Father, write Your Word upon our hearts, we pray. Give us a zeal for the lost. Lord, our hearts do burn for those who are around us locally. We pray that they would burn more. Lord, that they would yearn more for them to know Christ. And Father, in light of this text, we pray, give us a bigger burden for the nations. Help us to be those who pray earnestly for the conversion of the nations that are yet to have the light of the Gospel. Father, help us to be like Paul who made it his aim to preach Christ not where he had been named, lest he build on another's foundation. Father, help us not to be fearful. Help us not to take the easy way out. But help us, Lord, to have courage, to be courageous. Father, just as as Ken read in our, our Old Testament text, as Israel stood fearful of the task before them, even though You had promised to deliver them and to bring them into the land, Christ has promised to be with us to the end of the age. And so we pray that we would not stand fearful, but that we would go forth with courage. Lord, work in our midst, we pray. We are feeble. Our efforts are feeble. You are the One who gives the growth. Lord, bring revival. Bring revival, Lord, to the churches here in America that the truth of Your Word, the urgency of Your Word would return to the pulpits. Help us, Lord, to be a bright light and a burning lamp in the midst of a a very dry land that does not honor Your Word. Help us to model that as well. Father, bless us, we pray. Bless our lunchtime together, our fellowship. We pray that You would instruct us again and encourage our hearts this afternoon. We pray, Father, that You would be gracious. Build Your church. We pray, Lord, be gracious to all those who are unable to be with us for sickness and other reasons. Minister to their hearts as they no doubt miss the gathering of the saints. Be their help, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.